So go ahead and grab your Bibles, Revelation chapter 4. Uh, I mentioned this morning, what, what, what I'm wanting to do on Sunday nights is, I, I've had a lot of people say when we started the seven churches, and we're really going verse by verse to the first three chapters of Revelation on Sunday mornings, a lot of people want us to keep going. And I get that. I don't want to because I don't know, I don't really have a conclusion for you on a lot of things you want to know, okay? I don't know what the market beast is, um, and I don't know if it's Reagan or Obama. I don't, okay? I, I'm just, just leave it there. I don't know. Uh, what issue in the news you should be looking at. I, I just don't have a clue. I grew up in a sort of culture that said you need two things in your hands, a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other, right? I don't know where you get that in the Bible, but nevertheless, that's what I was raised to and, and, and told. But what I want to do instead of doing that, because I am a bit agnostic about some of the uh, uh, um, uh, conclusions that people draw um, from Revelation, and, and part of this is because I, I don't want us to miss the big picture. So what I want us to do the next five, six weeks is look at those big picture things. We get so distracted by the minutia of revelation. What does every symbol and metaphor and illustration and apocalyptic imagery mean? We miss the point. So I want to make sure we don't miss the point. And so we're going to look at several themes uh, throughout revelation, beginning with Christ as creator. Now, this is a big issue in revelation. We're not going to make it past one chapter. So uh, there is more to be said here, but unless you want to miss work tomorrow, and who doesn't want to do that, um, uh, we, we are going to limit our study of Revelation 4. So uh, with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence to God's Word. We'll read the chapter. Um, the Apostle John writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Revelation 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, behold, a throne stood in heaven with one, with, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of an em emerald. And around the throne were twenty-four thrones. Seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, but before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, at each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, third living creature like the face of a man, a fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around within and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, as, as we approach such a difficult passage as much of Revelation is, we open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes, and our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that your spirit that inspired this text would move us to obedience and move us to transformation, move us to sanctification. Uh, Lord, we, are, we will encounter our Savior who is creator. Let us not overlook the significance of that. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. One of the things I want to do as we go through these on Sunday nights is I want to do fun but somewhat brief vignettes of people who have gotten some things wrong 
because of their interpretation of Revelation. What we're doing is, is we want to focus on the big picture. What is the big picture of Revelation, right? You, you don't want to miss the forest for the, for, for the tree. And, and throughout history, there are those who have done precisely that. And what they do is that they take a single passage or a verse or an idea, and they run rampant with it, leading many astray. I want to start with, with this young lady, a woman by the name of Joanna Southcott. Born, as you can see, in England in 1750, she was an English dairy farmer. In 1792, she joined a Wesleyan movement and claimed to, to start to receive visions and dreams. And from that came a series of prophecies. And out of those experiences, she announced to the world that she was the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 12. You can turn to Revelation 12 on, on your own time. Uh, but that is where you have the woman giving birth to the Messiah. And there's a big red dragon ready to devour the baby. They have to flee the, the, the Petra or whatnot. But she claimed she was that woman. And part of this new prophetic ministry she had was that she began to sell what were called paper seals of the Lord. Here is a, a picture of one there. And if you bought one of these, now anytime a, a preacher comes and tells you, you got to buy this, right? Your security is dependent upon it. You need to know you can do better, right? Go, go left, right, straight, back, whatever. Find anyone else but that charlatan, okay? The second they start talking about money, you, you could probably just move on. By the way, don't forget, you can tithe and everything. You can, I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you bought one of these, I don't know how much it was or anything, it would secure that you would be numbered among the 144,000 in Revelation. I mean, don't you want to be numbered among them? We'll see something similar when we get to the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, later. Well, at the age of 64, this is 1814, she claimed that she was pregnant. She had never been pregnant her entire life, and, and from what I understand, she had never been with a, another man her, her entire life. But here she was, ready to, to, to give birth as, uh, as a virgin. And she promised that this child that she was carrying in her womb... Now remember, the story in Revelation 12 is of a woman giving birth. This is, she's claiming she's literally doing that. She's a prophetess who's given birth, and this child would be the Messiah. She picked a date. It was October 19th of 1814. Crowds and onlookers started to, to come along, and she was on the inside. They were on the outside, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, only to be disappointed. But, but don't, 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 don't go ahead of me yet. They come out and say that, that Joanna Southcott was in a trance. She was in meditation, and she did indeed give birth to a child. But you can't see the child. The child was immediately, in fulfillment of Revelation 12, caught up into heaven. She died a few days later. Now, it's difficult to know exactly the exact date she died. The reason is because the Southcottians, as they were known, left her in state, didn't bury her, didn't have a funeral, didn't announce her death or anything for several days until it became unbearable because they assumed she would rise again. They claim she died in childbirth, giving birth to the Messiah. I'm not so sure that is the case. However, there was a child born. Kind of. Just work with me here, people. We're doing the best we can. It is this lady, Martha Barltrup. She's better known as Octavia, a name she gave herself, which usually tells you something about the person. Notice, born in 1866, not rather in 1814. But nevertheless, she claimed and came later and claimed she was the child born 
of Joanna Southcott. Southcott had claimed that the child she would give birth to was in fulfillment of Genesis 49. Remember that Jacob gives these prophecies, uh, and one of them was a messianic prophecy to Judah, that a child of Judah in the future would, would be the Messiah. And so uh, uh, Octavia, or Martha Baltra, claimed that she was that child. She started a movement. Uh, she took the name of Daughter of God, too. But she started a movement now known as the Panacea Society, based in Bedford, England. You can go there now. You can find stuff about them now. They claim that Bedford was the original site of the Garden of Eden. Again, if you have a movement that claims something like that, go somewhere else. Okay, Google anything. You'll find something more, more reliable. Uh, it continued until the year 2012 when the last surviving uh, member of the Panacea Society or the South Cottians finally died. This is her. Her name is Ruth Klein, died in 2012. She was about 90 years old, I'll give or take. Lived a long time. Now, in 1814, when Southcott died, there was about 100,000 followers. Um, now, obviously, that the movement has died. There is a trust, uh, Panacea Society trust. It's still in operation. I don't know how any of that stuff works, but it is still around. Um, now, here's where it gets bizarre. You thought it already was bizarre. Prior to her death, Southcott had a box. And she claimed uh, there were a number of prophecies in those boxes that had to be opened at a later date by the Church of England uh, whenever England was in a world of trouble. Now, can you imagine, was there ever a time when England was in a lot of trouble between 1814 and, let's say, 2021? Can you think of a few times? We'll meet them on the beaches. We'll fight them in the city, right? I mean, Churchill, right? The whole World War II was a problem. World War I was a problem. The Cold War was a problem. International pandemic, right? There's plenty, plenty of examples. By the way, if you still don't believe me, see what she is clutching right there? That's the box. Never been opened since at least 1814. And in it are secret prophecies given by uh, the woman who claimed to be the, the, the woman of Revelation 12. Well, what the Panacea Society, remember Panacea Society comes from the woman who claimed to be the child of Joanna Southcott. In the 1960s and 70s, so this is after all the wars and all that sort of stuff, they wanted the Church of England to open the box. Wanted them to do this. So they started an advertisement and media campaign pushing the government and pushing the Anglican church to do that. So here is just, just a few examples. You see over here, uh, England's dangerous destruction will increase until the bishops open Joanna Southcott's box. Over here, crime and banditry, distress and perplexity will increase until the bishops open Joanna Southcott's box. Another slogan was war, disease, crime, banditry, all of that will continue, right? And this, they're all over England, and, and they warned that if the contents of the box were not opened before 2004, destruction would follow, and we would be unprepared for it. And I got to tell you, I graduated 2003. They may be on to something, right? Because ever since I graduated high school, it's just been down, okay? I mean, look at us now, right? I mean, a year ago, we were mad because we couldn't go to work. A year later, we're now like, I really want to go to work, right? I mean, it's, 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 the last year's been pretty rough. I'll tell you why. We didn't open up South God's box. That's what happened. Well, there is more going on with the box. You can Google it and have fun yourself. But I think it's fair to say that is wrong. And the reason it's wrong isn't just because it's bad exegesis, but because it misses the point. 
The point of Revelation isn't to find ourselves there. It is to see the glory of Christ permeated on every page. And you cannot see the glory and the power and the awesomeness of Christ in chapter 4 without it just leaping off the page. Even amid all of the the bizarre imagery, the purpose of the passage is is for, for the reader to see how awesome is the God that we worship. Well, you see here that chapter 4 follows the, 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 the seven churches, right? And, and so chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches, and immediately we get this, this foundational scene. Let's begin with the creatures here in Revelation chapter 4. And the action is picking up. Whether this vision of John is in the body or out of the body, to use Pauline language, remains a mystery. But what he is doing here, and it's important for us to see this throughout the book of Revelation, John is trying to describe the indescribable. Okay, And we missed this, right? There was a preacher uh, I once saw on Twisting the Bible Nightly years and years and years ago. He, he, he tried to illustrate on the back wall behind him of, of uh, uh, you know, a beast with seven heads and, and ten crowns with, with a horn going up and, and the four living creatures, one with the face of an eagle. Don't do that. The point isn't to illustrate what he's describing. The point is to say, this is bizarre, and it's bizarre because it's indescribable. You couldn't do any better than John did. He used the genre of apocalyptic imagery so we can get the big point. Well, nevertheless, he's worshiping on Sunday. That is a brief footnote to make there. John is worshiping on Sunday, not a Saturday. Even though Jews, Saturday is the Sabbath day. It's the seventh day of the week. He's worshiping on Sunday, the Lord's day, because Christ was risen from the dead. Every Sunday we gather for worship, we are celebrating Easter. So he is doing that. He is, he is worshiping while in isolation, while uh, being persecuted, while being stranded on a forgotten island. He gets this wild vision of heaven. And the proverbial curtain of, of Oz is pulled back, and he sees Christ ruling and reigning in glory. Actually, I, I just made a mistake there. Did, did you see it? We don't know who he's seeing here yet in the text, do we? If you were to isolate chapter 4, you'll notice that the person sitting upon the throne is described in incredible ways, yet he is never, we are never told exactly who he is until the very end. It isn't until the second song, I believe it is, or at least in verse 10, are we, are we told who is sitting upon the throne. And that's on purpose because we, we are to say, who is this guy? Because in chapter 5, the question is, who is worthy? And so he's building up to a climactic point where we see this is Christ upon the throne, ruling and reigning over the universe. Now, he is commissioned to come up here in verse 1 for dispensationalists. This might be evidence for the rapture for, for, for everyone else. This, 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 this is, you can't find the rapture there. You do whatever it is you want, whatever your conclusion is. I, I frankly, at this point, do not care because it's not the main point of the passage. Now, verse 2, the first thing John describes seeing is a throne. Don't, don't miss that there. He says, at once I was in the spirit. And behold, not wild, bizarre creatures, not a bright light, not my a third cousin twice removed, right? That's not what he says there. What I see and what I beheld was a throne. Well, we don't know who's sitting on the throne. We don't know anything about this throne. It is just a, a throne. And we need to see that particularly in the first half of Revelation, first eight chapters, so about third or whatever, is, is this throne imagery is important because what you're going to get is a mockery of such ruling from the beast. And so we have to establish the importance of this throne. We saw in chapter one, right? John had, had seen 
seen uh, uh, the one ruling upon the throne, that the seven spirits who are before his throne. In chapter 5, we'll see this next week. I saw on the right hand of, who, of him who was seated on the throne that we meet here. In chapter 6, they call to the mountains rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated upon the throne. In chapter 7, this I looked to behold, a great multitude, no one could number. And from there it goes, from every tribe, tongue, people group, ethnicity, language, and all that. Before the throne of Lamb, crying, salvation belongs to our God. By the way, notice here, it's God who is upon the throne. Later in, in, in chapter 8, verse, verse 3, another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. and He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Notice here, the prayers of the saints are coming for the one who is now seated upon the throne. This is an incredible imagery that John wants you to see upon this throne. He sits upon it. He doesn't pace from it. He doesn't worry about someone taking it from him. There is a throne, and it is his and his alone. And notice the rich detail of verse 3. He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. If you have any idea what he's describing there, good for you. Good luck. Now, I'll admit, I know nothing about precious stones. Why? Because I am a male. Okay, uh, I remember when, when I was looking for a ring for my wife. This is free, none of my notes. That means we'll get out later. I was looking for, for a ring for my wife, and, and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where you went. I knew they sold rings at the mall. We'll start there. I had a good buddy at, 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 the, at the other end of the hall. I said, he seemed like he knew a little bit about rings. Why don't you go with me? Okay, and we went to a few places. I saw some I liked, and I can, I can assure you here today, my wife does not have the cheapest ring at the place where I bought her, her engagement ring. She's got the second cheapest one they had on sale, right? I, I'm quite proud of that, right? You know, now that may seem like insignificant to you, but I was only making 100 bones a, a week, and 50 of that I had to go to gas. So now the way I paid it off was during Christmas break, I didn't go nowhere at all, right, <laughs> for, for two months, right? Can't do that. Got to pay for the ring because you can't say that to the girl you're about to ask Mary. So obviously I know nothing about precious stones. I don't know what carnelian is. I don't know what jasper is. or But really what we're not supposed to see is, wow, I'd love for a ring like that. Or I'd love to put that uh, in a bracelet or something. That's not the point. The point is, again, that he's describing the indescribable. Right? If you take this imagery literally, it gets quite bizarre. Right? He who sat there had the appearance of. Not that he is armed with. Right? This is what you're missing. It isn't that his throne is decorated with these stones. It is he who sits there has the appearance, right? And I imagine if you were to take these, these precious stones and, and you, you lay them the way they are and you, you gave them the brightest light, you would say that is indescribable. An indescribable beauty. And he said, I, I can only grasp what I know of precious stones and attach it to he who sits upon the thrones. And there I can kind of pick up with, with maybe what, what, what you're saying there, John, right? That's the point. Don't imagine him with jasper eyes just twinkling in, in, in the light, right? That's not what you're supposed to do. It's the appearance of this. I think D.A. Carson is right when, when, he, when he puts it this way. How do you describe a God who is more pure than the driven snow, more magnificent than the most stunning sunset, who is more intransigent than a million twinkling stars, who is more nourishing than the best of foods, whose love is firmer and more tender than the wisest and best of parents, who's more awesome than all the unleashed forces of nature. How do you describe someone like that? Can you? This is a start. I can't tell you what, what, what these stones actually look like. I can't tell you the difference between a gravel rock and any other rock. But I can tell you what he's trying to tell us. 
He's trying to describe the indescribable. In fact, those stones are significant. You can't understand Revelation without understanding the rest of the Bible. It is the great climax of the Bible. Everything has been building up to this point. Let me show you three places where these stones show up outside of he who sits upon the throne. Just three places, as quickly as, as I can. actually took some, some stuff out here. The first is, anybody can you get that back up for me? The first is that it decorates New Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter uh, 20, it says that the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. So there is jasper. Later it says, uh, and then it lists a number of, of stones and jewels. The first was jasper. The fourth was emerald. The fifth onyx. The sixth carnelian, right? And it goes on and on and gives stones that I, I never can pronounce. I don't like to even try. So what you're seeing here is, is that this is the do. I'll, I'll find the rest. It's fine. Uh, uh, that... Uh, that you get, um, all of these are describing the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the earth, the new Garden of Eden, right? This is what we're, we're looking forward to. And he says, what do you find there are these stones? Well, that makes sense because God's there. Christ is there. And so what you have here is more than precious rocks that John wished he had gotten his wife, but rather a description of the indescribable. Not only there, these are the same stones that are used to decorate the priestly garments, you, you, you see them there, right? Uh, describing the garments, I cut a lot of stuff out. The fourth row, a barrel, an onyx, a jasper. They shall be set in gold. Gold is all over Revelation as well. You shall set it in four rows of stones, a row of sardis. It's, it's, the, it's a Hebrew verse, the same word that you get here with carnelian. And later you see the second row has an emerald in it. Same stones you see John describing here. One other place we, we find these stones, and this is significant. We're going backwards here. You see it in a New Jerusalem. You see it in the throne, he who sits upon a throne. You see it the priestly garments. But where do we first see these? We see it in the Garden of Eden. Right? I'm going to use Ezekiel because he puts them all together for us. But we can go back to Genesis and see a bunch of these. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Right? Very clear what he's talking about. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, that's Carmelian, Hebrew. Don't worry about it. Topaz and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbon. Uh, car Monocle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. You, you, you see, it's the same stones. So it isn't just, he's like, man, can I think of some really precious diamonds here? No, no, no. He, he's saying, look, this is being developed throughout scripture that these stones that begin in the garden of God that point us to the beauty and the majesty and the power of God show up here when the curtain is removed and I see them in his essence. And, and we'll see them forever and ever and ever in the garden of New Eden. And what the priests were doing in their ephods and their garments, they're saying, this is but a taste. The point was that when you saw the priests, they would shine and, and, and they would be like Moses off the mountain so that you can say, there lies the Shekinah glory of God. John's trying to describe that for us. Can you describe the Shekinah glory of God? No, thou canst. You can't. But he understands what the Bible was doing throughout its history in using these stones. Well, we've got to move on. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, can anyone tell me who these are? No, you can't. Okay. Now, it's not that there aren't options. There's plenty of options, right? Um, they could represent the church. Some, some like to pick up the 20, number 24, which if my Owen County Public School education tells me anything, 24 divided by 2 is 12. 12 plus 12 equals 24. That's kind of how division works. And so what you could have here, they represent the 12 apostles and the 12 uh, uh, um, tribes of Israel, right? Okay, maybe. I don't know. It doesn't tell us that. 
So, 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 so what I want us to do is, is to not go farther than the text. Can we agree these are some sort of ruling beings, if you will, in the throne room of, of God? Is that, that fair? They are called elders, right? Presbyteros, where we get the word Presbyterian today. That's why they have elders. It comes from the Greek word. And, and so, so, so clearly that there is, there is a, a, a work here. Now, to the surprise of many, the Bible includes numerous divine beings beyond that of angels. We talked about angels some this past Wednesday. So you have angels, right? These aren't winged figures, sometimes confused with men. In the Bible, we saw an example of that, Son of Gomorrah. Again, Wednesday, we could add to that cherubim, seraphim, the four living creatures we'll see next, the 24 elders. Perhaps these are among those divine beings. And I see that perhaps it is best to see them as among these divine beings. They have some role in the throne room. They have some responsibility. It's not developed for us for whatever reason, uh, but, but here they are. But we are, to, we are to see here, yes, we understand angels, but these are elders, and there's 24 elders, and where are they? They are in the throne room of God. Can I tell you who's not in the throne room of God right now? You and me ain't in the throne room of God right now because we can't be there. These are magnificent beings that we, that we have here. Regardless, each elder is given a throne preserved for them. Have you ever looked at the, a presidential cabinet when they all meet? They have their cabinet meetings. Have you, ever, have you ever really looked at that? Everyone has a certain seat, so the uh, Homeland Security over here, Secretary of Treasury is over there, and all, all that sort of thing. You know what I'm talking about, right? They sit around the big table, you know, Arthur's round table, whatever it is. Do you know how they set up the chairs, particularly the presidential chair? It is slightly higher up so that when the president sits, he sits slightly, but he still sits above everyone in his cabinets. Why? Because he's the man. He's the one in charge. So too, what do we have? We have 24 thrones. We have 24 elders, right? But whose throne is above all the others? Is the one who sits upon the throne. He's the one in charge. And notice they are clothed in white, representing purity, and golden crowns on their heads. Thus they rule. Don't miss the, the, the importance of crowns. They rule. However they rule, and there's mystery there, they rule with purity and righteousness. That's why golden crowns and white robes are so important. But then notice that John starts to describe natural phenomena. Maybe we can figure out what he's talking about here. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder. Before the thrones were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Again, don't take things too literally. He is clearly borrowing from the Sermon on the Mount scene. If we had time, we could go to Exodus 19 and other passages. We would see the same imagery of lightning and thunder and earthquakes and all that sort of stuff. Such imagery, such phenomena is associated in the Bible with God's presence, God's grandeur, God's might. So, you, so, so here he is. He, he, he describes it with stones. And he says, but, but there are elders there. There's rulers there, kings with crowns. And, and they're below him, the one upon the throne. So there's, there's less, lesser thrones upon there. And what I see is thunder and lightning, right? The awesomeness of, of nature. And, and it doesn't shake him out of his throne. He's the ruler of, of such phenomenon. He's the cause of such phenomenon. So much so that he is said to have seven torches. They represent the seven spirits of God. Now, there's an obvious play here on the number seven, right? Um, I, I was, I'm, I'm reading through a commentary on John for a, uh, uh, a publisher, and, and the commentator mentions, this is new, this is, this is free, it's a footnote. 
Uh, John, in his gospel, likes to use the number seven. There's seven famous I am statements. There's seven signs. There's also seven references to the Psalms. There's all kinds of stuff like that in John, all kinds of stuff like that in the revelation of Jesus to John, right? And this is one of them. Now, what is significant is the emphasis on God's fullness. Seven lights, seven torches, seven spirits. What you don't have here is literally seven individual spirits of God. What do you do with that with the Trinity? No, the idea is fullness, completeness. He is all light. He is spirit, right? He's the indescribable one. He's so much light. We have to use precious stones with thunder and lightning and earthquakes just to describe the guy sitting down, okay? He hasn't even talked yet, for goodness sakes. And he's having to use this language to describe one who is sitting on a throne. It's incredible imagery we have here. And then you'll notice there uh, at the last part of verse 6 and going into verse 7, we meet more creatures around the throne. On each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second an ox, the third uh, has face of a man, the fourth an eagle in flight. Again, we, we meet more of the, the divine counsel here, don't we? And they are equally mysterious. These aren't the 24 elders. These aren't uh, uh, generic angels. No, no, these, these, these are four living creatures and they are more bizarre than the 24 elders. Uh, now, some suggest there's a hierarchy of, of angels. That makes sense. After all, there are archangels. Not everyone is an archangel. If everyone was an archangel, uh, not, then the word archangel wouldn't have any meaning, right? So there's clear a hierarchy among the angels. There's likely hierarchy among the throne room and the divine beings, all of, all of that sort of stuff. Maybe the 24 elders are above the four living creatures. Maybe the four living creatures are above the 24 elders. I simply do not know. However, throughout history, one's importance is demonstrated by one's entourage. Can we agree with that? Think about it. If I were to walk out here and I'm going to go get me a bite to eat at White Castle right over here, you know, real fine dining. And if you disagree with me, you can leave. But I'm going to go over here to White Castle. OK. And how many people are going to follow me? Maybe, maybe three and one of you who's really hungry and ready to throw away your life. Right. Let's say there are five of us. That's my entourage. That's impressive enough. Never had an entourage of five people before. If the President of the United States were sitting right here, he says, all right, I'm going to go over here to, to, to White Castle. What's his entourage going to be? A little more than mine. Can I tell you why? He's a little more important to me than me in, in, in human affairs. Would we agree with that? I think we get this, right? If, if, if I were some celebrity, you pick the one you have a crush on, and I were to say, I'm going to go over here to White Castle, is their entourage going to be bigger than me? The paparazzi will outnumber my entourage about tenfold. Got to put this in front of the magazine of him taking a bite of a burger, right? Whatever it might be. We do associate the size of an entourage with importance. Well, consider the entourage God has here. It's quite impressive, isn't it? In chapter 5, we're going to see that they're all going to fall down before him. We get a hint of that, very clear hint of that here. These 24 ruling elders, whatever that is, four living creatures with wild imagery taken from the Old Testament. What do we have here? They are all here at the behest of the one who sits upon the throne. Now, these four living creatures, they're not first introduced here in Revelation. They're first introduced in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 1, this is where Ezekiel runs into the aliens, right? If you, if you watch the non-historical channel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then just ignore that comment I made about the aliens. But in Ezekiel 1, verses 5 to 6, it says, And from the midst of the wheel within the wheel, sort of spaceship, um, came the likeness of four living creatures. Huh, it sounds like John may have been stealing this from your, your boy Ezekiel, huh? Same language. This was their appearance. They had human likeness. Each had four faces. Each of them had four wings and on and on and on. It goes from there. Ezekiel 10 called them cherubim. Now remember, cherubim are not angels. 
what we've done is, is, is we've got chubby little kids. We put little wings on them and we give them a harp and we call them angels. That's not the picture you have in the Bible. These are mighty, impressive, incredible beings. They ain't chubby, right? They're scary. What would you do if you saw someone described in such a way as having a face of a lion, face of a man, face of an eagle at flight, right? So on and, and so forth. This is, this is scary stuff. If we were to see this, we wouldn't, we wouldn't say, boy, am I going to write a best-selling book on this? I can't wait. No, 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 no. We, we are going to be stunned as such beings. Now, remember, the cherubim are often associated with protecting the presence of God. We see them primarily in two places in the Bible, at least worth mentioning. First, the Garden of Eden. Remember when they show up in the Garden of Eden story? After the man and woman are kicked out, who shows up? Cherubim, with their faces and everything, armed with a mighty sword that is on fire. Now, that sounds cool. I don't understand it, but it sounds cool, okay? You know, I mean, that is awesome, right? You know, you ain't going back and you ain't knocking on that door. <laughs> no, sir, we, you ain't. You know, the other time where they're, they're, they're presented in the presence of God for protection? It's the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, their wings are are hovering over the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, touching. You dare not approach because the cherubim themselves are frightening, let alone God himself. And what do we find here? These four living creatures associated with the cherubim and Ezekiel. And here they are described in, in bizarre ways, yes, but with each imagery. And some scholars like to go, well, the eagle represents this and the man represents that and the lion represents that. I, I, I don't know about all that. But clearly what you have is an awesome description, not of the one who sits upon the throne, but the people who hang around him. Think about it. Most entourages are made up of people who ain't impressive. Not this entourage. You and I, we ain't part of it right now because we ain't impressive like this. No one could describe us like this. And notice so far, we, we, we've, we've not met who is the one sitting up on the throne. Just the people around him leave us stunned. And the effect of all this, of course, is it leaves us in awe. While approaching the throne, John sees creatures beyond imagination. I mean, what do we really have here? Creatures with four faces? What? An ox? A man? A lion? An eagle? At flight? What is that? What is an emerald rainbow with the appearance of jasper and carnelian really look like? And can you, can you draw that out for me? How can one stand in the presence of such a storm? Look, may, some of you may like to go outside in, in tornado weather, and, and here comes the storm. Right? My wife is one of those. It's weird. Right? It's just bizarre to me. Not me, right? I want to be downstairs in the safest place under a blanket, right? That's more me. You can't stand in such storms. And this guy creates them for John to stand in awe of this mysterious figure who sits up on the throne. Let the imagery move you. You cannot approach the creator, John wants us to see, as a mere creature. You're not worthy of it. And that's going to come into place in chapter 5. Who is worthy? And what does John say? I began to weep because there's no one, anyone here worthy to open the scroll. Certainly not me. Well, that's the creature's. If you're not lost already, let's look at the creator. 
with all the characters and the creatures and the scenery established, we, we get to the real action, as if you haven't gotten enough already. And notice what happens here starting in verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. So we begin here with the four living creatures. The last one we're introduced to in chapter 4, they, they, they begin the real action when we meet the Creator. They are closest to, to, to the throne, and what do they do? They break out in song. Not only do these four living creatures protect the throne, they seem to play a role in orchestrating the worship around the throne. And they continue to sing praise and lead a divine council to join them. Now notice again how they describe. Yes, we get the six wings, perhaps it's likely picking up Isaiah 6, right? Because it's the same song essentially that you have here. But notice how everything's described. They are full of eyes. I don't know what that means. Can you describe that? No, you can't. Moving on. But you need to be awed with it. And notice it's eyes without and it's eyes within. What in the world does that mean? I don't know. I don't know. Probably has nothing to do with helicopters in the 1990s. I'm guessing. But you got to see, this is an indescribable imagery. And he's put it in language we can understand while being in awe of what it is that he's describing here. And what do these magnificent creatures sing? Sings a song. This first song we ought to find familiar. Holy, holy, holy. This repetition is important. We talked about this this past Wednesday night. When you see repetition in a Hebrew context, clearly a Hebrew context, you need to make note of it because what is being repeated is important. So we saw the word appeared a lot Wednesday night. In Isaiah 6, we see the same uh, three words, holy, holy, holy. What do you think the biblical writers are trying to get you to see about this, this guy sitting upon the throne? He's three things. He's holy, he's holy, he's holy. Same thing we do with real estate. What's the most important thing in real estate? It's not the kitchen. It's not the living room. It's not the backyard. It's location, 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 right? What's the most important thing we've got to grasp about he who sits upon the throne? He is, it's not, it, it is simply he is holy, holy, holy. This is what we sing in our hymn, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy. Though the darkness hide thee, though, ever, though the eye of sinful man Thy glory may not see, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power and love and purity. And notice they don't just sing holy, holy, holy. I wish we could spend more time on the issue of holiness. Some will say that holy means separate, right? Well, there's a problem with that. What the, what the cherubim are not saying is separate, separate, separate. That's not what they're doing at all. Some will say, well, holiness just means morality, right? Okay, fine. But what they're not singing is moral, moral, moral. That's not what they're doing at all. Right? There's something more grandeur here. This has to do with his, his being, his essence. Here are the four living creatures in his presence 24 hours a day. If we could use that language in the throne room. And what is it that they declare? The thing they want you to see, he who sits upon the throne is holy. Not only that, but who was and is, and is to come. It's a favorite phrase of, of John in Revelation. Let me give you two examples just from chapter one. We saw this a few weeks ago. John to the seven churches in Asia. Notice the fourth verse of the book. This means it's kind of important. Grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and is to come. What you're used to reading in letters is grace and peace to you from our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Paul to Timothy, right? That's what you're used to. John adds to it. Grace and peace to you from who? The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. It's a fancy way to say he is eternal forever and ever. You can get from there a reference to the cross and resurrection. I certainly think that is the case. But he is eternal nonetheless. By the way, you see the same thing in verse 8. What does Jesus say? I am the Alpha and the Omega. We saw the beginning in here this morning with Smyrna. 
who is, who was, is to come omnipotent, the Almighty. Who is speaking here? It is the Lord God is speaking, Christ claiming full deity for himself. This is not a God who merely sits upon a throne. He's ruling actively and he reigns over his creation as its holy creator. And he is worthy of praise for that alone. Worthy of praise as our ruler, as our creator. Now what we get is, is, is that the, the four living creatures who are leading this choir in heaven, they sing the first verse, right? It's a solo. Four of them, I guess. Now the rest of the choir join in, right? We meet them in verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, it's kind of the whole point of the song, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. You see that repetition again? It was in the song, then it's in the explanation. Who is, who was, is to come is a way of saying he lives forever and ever. Oh, by the way, if you didn't hear me the first time, he lives forever and ever. It's right there in the text. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. Here we have the rest of the divine counsel we've been introduced to. I believe we'll meet more in the next chapter. The living creatures, notice they give glory, honor, and thanks. This is something striking here. In the Old Testament, it is often said that God is worthy of glory and honor. You'll find all kinds of phrases like that in the Psalms and the prophets and whatnot. You know what they don't mention in the Old Testament? Thanks. That's a new, not a New Testament idea, but it's a New Testament emphasis. Why? Because God, as your creator, redeemer, you have an abundance of things to be thankful for. This is why Paul can say, I give thanks in my remembrance of you all the time. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, he'll say in, in, in Romans. And you really just, again, this is a, a footnote of application. Is it too simple to say what this world is missing is real Thanksgiving? Not the holiday. We can keep it. I'm talking about real Thanksgiving. You want to know that what will make you entitled? A lack of Thanksgiving. Want to know what will make you envious, bitter, prideful? A lack of Thanksgiving. You have nothing that you have, ne- that you have not been given by the Creator Himself, including the breath you breathe, the ability to speak, to move, to interact, to live is a gift from God. And a lack of thanksgiving is rooted in a lack of worship. What do we have here? We give glory and honor and thanks to you, the one who lives forever and ever. Ever. And so the 24 elders join them, and they're in verse 10 very clear. And notice there, they cast their crowns before the throne. This is a surrender of all authority. This is a surrender of all that they are. They are nothing compared to him. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the throne of all thrones. What is this crown compared to the kingdom you have? We get the second song. Worthy are you. So we go from holy to worthy. Worthy is going to set up with what we see in chapter 5. Perhaps we could argue that what what you're really getting in chapter 4 and 5 is this language of worthiness and holiness combined and how they interact with each other. He who is holy is worthy. He who is worthy is is holy. But worthy would be developed more in chapter 5. And and, and the question is, what is he worthy of? Again, that will be answered in chapter 5. He is worthy to break the seal, to open the scroll and the judgment to come down upon the earth. Leave out that part about judgment. I was kidding. That's not cool anymore. But how often will we think of worshiping a God who condemns the wicked? It's exactly what you get in Revelation. And you're only going to get that if you respect the seven letters to the churches and their situation. 
Worthy are you, our Lord and God. This is the first time he who sits upon the throne is clearly identified. Right here, verse 10. Verse 11, rather. Our Lord and God. Part of this he's described in might and grandeur as the one who lives forever and ever to receive crowns from the elders as the one who sits upon the throne. Here we, we know who he is. He is the Lord. He is God. And by the way, we just read from chapter one, still up there, who is the Lord God? The Alpha and the Omega. This is Christ who sends messages to his seven churches who rules over the universe. Where four living creatures, 24 elders, and the angels themselves fall down in ceaseless, endless worship, singing, worthy. Worthy. Yeah, I think our schedule was too packed for us to worship Jesus regularly, don't you? Not when you grasp this imagery. Well, beyond worthiness in verse 11, why does the divine council worship him? We get two answers in this psalm. The first is because Christ is sovereign sustainer. He is sovereign sustainer. Look at the language again. You created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. By your will. That means God in Christ is both creator and sustainer. This is classic evangelical Christian theology. You've got to put both of them together. It's not that, God, that Christ created and he walked away. That's what I do with Legos. But rather that Christ created and he sustains. He moves with. He participates with. He exercises lordship over. He holds the earth in his hand. In fact, Paul would write this in Colossians that 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 that. that the, the world functions in, in him. So if you take Christ out, everything will fall apart. We grasp that theologically. We, we, we grasp it Christologically. We grasp it soteriologically that, that everything is sustained by Christ. He holds the universe in his right hand. Isn't that what the Smyrnans needed to see this morning? Do not fear what the worlds may do to you because we worship the one who's Lord over the worlds. And he's Lord over the nations. He's the one in charge of here. He sustains everything. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He is in control. So surrender our, our need to need. We have everything that we have there, isn't it? You created all things, and by your will they exist, including you. It is God's will that you live in 2021 and not 1921. God has you here right now for a purpose are we fulfilling that purpose or not? Finally, what we see here in application is that our entire being is wrapped up in him. This is really what is ruining our nation, isn't it? I think Doug Wilson is right when he argues that the real debate of our time is, is here in Revelation 4, we see the contrast between creator and creature. But what we're trying to do today is that the creatures are trying to claim for themselves they're actually the creator. A pill would fix that for you. A riot will fix that for you. Vote the right guy and it'll be fixed for you. Go to counseling and therapy. It'll be fixed for you. The whole world will believe everything you say about yourself and all your problems will be fixed. Believe every lie. Believe, believe every half-truth. Believe everything you're ever told. You are not creature. You are creator. And we wonder why we can't sustain this. Why cities are burning. We hate each other. Violence is on the rise. 
And our solutions are more nonsensical than, the, than, than what caused the problems to begin with. But what do we have here? Our entire being, physically, spiritually, is wrapped up in Christ. Your body isn't yours, it's Christ. Male, female, married, unmarried, single, dating, young, old, retired, working, student, boss, whatever it might be, your entire being is wrapped up in Him. Clergy, laity, new to the church, longtime member of the church, your entire being, your entire essence is wrapped in the one seated upon a throne whose entourage is beyond description. Act like it. Live like it. Believe it. And when we ascribe glory and honor and power and thanksgiving to him, therein lies the answer of all of our needs. I can't remember, chapter 4 falls in line, falls after the, the seven churches. Churches dealing with faithfulness. Churches dealing with love. Churches dealing with persecution. Churches dealing with false teaching. Churches dealing with threats in and out. And what's the answer? What, where does John begin? I saw him. I, the curtain was pulled back. And if you could see what I could see, all these problems would just fade away. But you and I ain't got nothing to worry about. He sits on a throne. That is beyond description. And it's not in the White House. 